Hey guys and girls, welcome to the first episode of Political Points, a podcast series where we talk about politics from the perspective of psychology. My name is Edward, and I'm delighted to be joined here today by Ms. Elaine Fernandez and Mr. Park Weyon to analyze the political situation in America by using social psychology. Ms. Elaine is currently serving as the head of psychology department here at Help University, and is also a researcher and lecturer of social psychology. Our second guest, Mr. Park Wei Han holds a master's in political psychology and is currently a lecturer of sit topic at the university as well. Before we dive into this juicy podcast episode, here is some background on the state of American politics. Ever since 1865 and the end of the Civil War, two parties have dominated the political scene of America. They are the Democratic Party, alternatively known as the left-wing party, and the Republican Party, alternatively known as the right-wing party. The Republican Party upholds more conservative and traditional values, while the Democratic Party emphasizes more liberal and progressive views on social issues. These two parties have always had their differences, but have grown even further apart in the past few years, with political polarization becoming a real issue that causes conflict and heightened divide among the American public. In recent news, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from the Democratic Party have been seated as the president and vice president-elect of the White House, ending the four-year presidential term of the Republican president, Donald Trump. In this podcast, we analyze the social psychological effects that were present during the presidential campaign and throughout Trump's administrative reign. Thank you to both of you for taking time to be here today. We have so much to talk about, and I guess we can start off by addressing the elephant in the room. The election results are coming in, and they look pretty tight. Honestly, I'm at the edge of my seat. I don't know how you guys feel about it. What do you guys think? I think it reflects the fact that people who come to discuss politics from the perspective that they hold by themselves will be very surprised by the current outcome. Depending on the news media you follow, people were projecting that it would be potentially surprising, but at the same time, that was more from a place of, oh no, 2016, what happens if it happens again? Versus any real belief that Trump could gain numbers in this way, but twice in a row kind of tells you something important. And I think we're going to be discussing that shortly. To echo what Elaine was saying as well, it's very surprising depending on what kind of media you subscribe to. But, you know, if you're looking at not only the presidential election as well, but from the Senate and the House, both of which which were way tighter than anyone, uh, than any projected polls would have assumed, it does point towards more a phenomenon that goes a bit deeper than the current elections. And because we will be looking at psychology, then there will be quite a lot to unpack. And you know, it's not just this one election, it's not 2016, it's something that has been happening for a long time. That's something to be excited to talk about. All right, thank you so much. I'm glad that we have both of you to really clarify the ambiguity and really the chaos that has been 2020 election, US election. Let us start off with my first question and context for you guys. One academic study has noted that Trump uses accusations a lot as a deflection and divergence strategy in his public communications. For example, he tends to accuse mainstream media as being fake news and frames himself as the source of the truth as well as divert attention to Fox News. He does this to discredit those that criticize him and to frame himself as being a credible source as well. 
So my question to both of you is, what are the effects of Trump's communication strategies on his followers and the American's public perception on topics like mainstream media, science, and COVID-19? I think what we have been observing is a polarization. The people who agree with him are becoming more and more influenced. You talk about group polarization, they become more extreme in their views. And it does increase suspicion about what is true. And with regard to the people who disagree with him, it makes them feel even more disenfranchised. And it makes it hard to change the narrative because it's a very clever method to basically cast doubt on the things that people say that do not support your stance. Because essentially what you're doing is you're inoculating your supporters to any kind of attempt at changing their minds. So when facts are presented to them, they now have a term to use to deflect those facts, alternative facts. I don't know how a fact can be one way or the other, but that's essentially what that kind of rhetoric does. It gives people the permission structure to not just believe the things they want to believe, but reject any kind of information outright, you know, without even processing it or even giving it time because off the bat, as long as it's coming from a left-wing news organization, it's no longer true. It's an alternative fact. So that's one of the very clear effects, polarization, and also a discounting cue for any information coming through from non, I guess, Trumpian sources. Also, uh, another thing where if you look at what he talks about, right, there's pretty much a vast amount, if not 70 to 80% of what he mentions are straight up untrue or lies. And these misinformation is basically perpetuated by the multiple media sources that are in his league. So what the effect that that could have as well is that it dilutes the discourse in, that goes on in public, right? And you can see the most recent kind of trends in response to how people view science, especially. To divert away from the US for a bit, Boris Johnson recently ordered a second lockdown in the UK and was criticized for listening to the scientists. And it was phrased as if you know, that now science is just another political faction rather than a source of research. By injecting a huge bunch of straight up lies and misinformation, what happens is it becomes that much harder for the average viewer to discern what is true and what is false. And then when there's polarization going on, it's also that much harder for the discerning individual to sort out what is true and what is false. And when you combine that with how easily information gets spread around recently as well, the entire public tends to, one, either doubt what they hear, two, have to spend more effort to try and pick out what is true and what is false, and then ends up making the whole process of understanding politics a lot more difficult, which is advantageous for his side. And that's one of the downsides we can see. From what I'm hearing from you guys, it creates a lot of chaos in public discourse. People don't know what to trust. People don't know where to look for. And fake news spreading fake news, you could say, mm -hmm. perpetuating fake news even further. And So following that, why does Trump use these kind of strategies? Are they effective? or persuading people to his side, or are they that lost in their own thought that they can't really see the reality of his lies? What people consider to be lies really depends on your worldview and your own schemas about the world. So things that he's saying are resonating with them. So if you take sort of like a postmodernist perspective about reality being merely what the person perceives, then the whole question about 
something being a lie is now called into question, right? So I don't necessarily think they even see what he's saying as a lie, per se. Because in order to evaluate something as being a lie, you have to understand that the other side is telling the truth. So if you're not willing to make that leap, right, or even say that's a possibility, then you will never have the framework in which to evaluate something as being a lie. In fact, what you are thinking is the other side is lying. The scientists have an ulterior motive for wanting people to stay indoors. That's where the conspiracy theories have a lot of room to grow and gain traction because they fit with this idea that, okay, if an economic shutdown is not good for us, but the scientists are saying that's what we need to do, and we know that the scientists are involved in vaccines and vaccines are bad for you, and, you know, so all of these different things that has been going on about people having doubts about science and pharmaceutical companies and so on and so forth, all of these kind of cluster together to make people very skeptical and about science in general. So when someone like Donald Trump, who has a position of authority, who has inside knowledge about what goes on in all these organizations, is now coming out and not necessarily directly calling them liars, but are casting doubt on the decisions that they're making. This gives people a way to go, right, so this basically validates everything that I've believed all along. And in that situation, I'm not going to call Donald Trump a liar. I'm going to see him as a beacon of truth, shining light on the system and the man and really bringing it and caring about the concerns of the working people in relation to what the man wants to do to me. You could see something exactly the same thing with the whole mask becoming a political issue though, isn't it? Because he himself in the briefing said, it's optional, I'm not going to do it, which led to a whole bunch of Americans go, oh, the president is not doing it, why would I, you know? So it just becomes your choice, what you want to believe in, and what you want to do, and that's kind of like a degrading of structure in a way. It is, it's a postmodernist take on, on reality, right? Really, nobody has a monopoly on reality, nobody has monopoly on truth. It's what your experience is. That can build a lot of room for empathy, that you can understand people's subjective experience in life. But as we see here, it also degrades any form of structure to discuss things between people. Sure, because if there's no objective point to rally around, then how do you then come to an agreement about how society is supposed to function, right? All right, thank you so much. Moving on to the next topic. Another academic study found that Trump's form of rhetoric or speech usually references right-wing media and news titles. Basically, the things that he says usually only understood by the people that follow right-wing media news outlets like Fox News. So this showcases that Donald Trump's incoherent responses at times actually have some meaning to it. To the rest of the world, it may seem like he's bumbling nonsense, but to these right-wing media followers, they have meaning. And this has been argued to show the presence of right-wing media narrative bubble. Could both of you elaborate on the presence of a media bubble or an echo chamber? And how does social psychology explain how they are formed? A filter bubble, interchangeably referred to as a social bubble in this podcast episode, is something resembling an echo chamber. It is a state of intellectual isolation that causes people to become separated from information that disagrees with their viewpoints, effectively isolating them in their own cultural or ideological bubbles. 
This is a really good one. So echo chambers and media bubbles aren't a new phenomenon, right? So the basic formation of how these things work is whenever I go online, what happens is I bring about my own opinions, my own perspectives, and there's usually a preference to look for people which echo similar events. Now, it doesn't just happen online because we are more likely to seek out people with similar opinions and thoughts than we have as well. So when we bring this online, what happens is it becomes that much easier to kind of collect people who have the same kinds of opinions and thoughts, and then we end up sharing with one another. So one, this has the potential to end up in polarization where because so many people are sharing the same viewpoints, the effects and the sentiments get accentuated with something that can potentially get a little bit more extreme than individual otherwise would feel. The other side is also due to how when people kind of collect along with each other as well, then this is where another aspect of how technology and social media sites can kind of sift information through. So, you know, recently there was an article from Tanija and Wu that actually talked about how social media sites or not even that, certain technological sites would kind of nudge individuals to specific directions. So collect information from how your, your browsing history would work and the kind of people that you have on Facebook and kind of just nudge you in specific directions that they think that would be particular interest to you as well. And the thing is, you might not even notice this happening. So when you type in something on Google, the first few options you notice can be manipulated by your ISP provider, for instance. So it's easier then to channel people into specific areas where they kind of in a way live in their own little bubble and then get scandalized when they find out that the rest of the world doesn't feel or think the same way as they do. So that's one of the, a little bit more of an insidious kind of look at how, at how people kind of end up in social bubbles. In a way, the personalization of our social media accounts, YouTube and all these things that we use online kind of enforces a bubble or an echo chamber from what I'm hearing from you. It basically channels us down specific pathways where, where yeah, eventually we end up in a bubble. Yeah. The evidence for the echo chamber and the filter bubbles is still very much up for debate. But there is, of course, more sort of a sense that if there are algorithms that will maybe show you more news that is relevant to what you're usually clicking on. However, people are exposed to both, right? Um, it's usually a choice that they're making to engage with one or the other. Again, this comes back to, am I going to feel better about watching? Most people, even when presented with the opportunity to basically watch something that is contrary, potentially contrary to what I believe, will often not make that decision because of the dissonance that will arise from watching something like that, right? So if you think about the way the question you phrased, incoherent, bumbling, etc., chances are most people who view Trump that way will be very unlikely to click on a Trump video, even if one pops up on their feed, unless it's a meme of him or a video that's making fun of him in some kind of way. But you flip that around, that same response is going to be happening for people who are Trump supporters, who distrust the Democrats, who distrust Biden as being an establishment man. They are not going to want to watch something that he's putting out either. So it's not so much a bubble that's been created by necessarily just algorithms, but it's also very much to do with individual choices on the basis of the emotional responses that they have to either party or candidate or person that they are supposed to be rejecting. That's actually very interesting because several studies have also found that people have certain physiological and sociological basis to like conduct confirmation bias or 
to look at information that they only want to look at and ignore that go against them. Like some studies have found that our brains are hardwired to embrace information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs and to ignore challenging evidence. And also that our beliefs of ourselves are tied up with our ideas of who we are and what group we belong to, the group identity that we belong to, which makes rejecting beliefs in light of new evidence all the more difficult for these people or for all of us, actually, we could say, because rejecting your old beliefs could mean you risk being rejected by your political community or the group that you belong to, which is your family, your friends and your colleagues. And that's, that's really hard. And also, mm. even if people overcome these biases, it has been shown that people have motivated cognition to deal with, which is a tendency for people to easily accept evidence that aligns with our worldview, but critically mm. analyze. I think Ms. Elaine talked a bit about this previously, but critically analyze evidence that doesn't align with our worldview. My question to you guys is regarding this, is that what are your thoughts on the human tendency for confirmation bias and motivated cognition among the Trump supporters? The first thing is you can see in terms of cognition, confirmation bias, well, like Elaine was mentioning earlier on, this is a thing that will kind of influence people to the choice of information that they would pick. And in terms of where, what kind of sources they'll dedicate themselves to, and also not just choosing information, but also disregarding information that doesn't fit a particular narrative theirs. I mean, and let's be very honest here, this is a fairly standard human response. When we have certain biases in place, we are more likely to look for information that is congruent to our biases. And to support that as well, there's something called the spotlight effect where we would only basically look for information where there's intention on it and we'll only pay attention to events or situations that we are slightly aware of. So our narrative may not be exactly what's happening, but what my own perceptions will lead me towards, right? So that is not a uniquely Trump support thing. That's something that you know, people do as a matter of course. It simply appears to be very strong in Trump supporters, mainly because, as we referred to earlier, how much dilution of information is in. So now it's easier to pick and choose from the wide variety of information that I have. And it doesn't matter if it's true or false. It makes me feel like it's true. So if I feel it in my gut that it's true, it has to be true. So, and there's tons of information that support that. And the interesting thing as well is because of how the narrative goes nowadays, whenever I'm confronted with, let's say, if somebody is trying to fact check what I just said or trying to just tell me, look, that, that's not true, it's easier to then dig down, double down and resist that information. And they just end up being more convinced because now I have an opponent, you know, I have an enemy to fight. So it just becomes more polarized as we go along. The idea that our brain is hardwired to sort of pay attention to things that confirm our ideas makes a lot of sense, right? If you think about schema theory, how our schemas are created, how they're maintained, how we prefer assimilation over accommodation, you know? So any information that's easy to incorporate into our schemas is generally what we prefer. And if we are needing to accommodate those schemas, we have to have a reason to want to do so. So like, for example, in this election, COVID was probably a reason for why a lot of seniors, for example, were finally motivated to adjust their schemas about Trump when they previously voted for him, right? A lot of Trump supporters who had encounters with COVID or had family members who were affected by COVID in terms of the illness itself and not the economic impact, they might have then had a motivation to revisit how they saw Trump. 
and then adjust and accommodate their schemas about him to include information that might suggest that actually he might not necessarily have the nation's best interest at heart, for example. But likewise, people who may have supported Democrats in the past might have disagreed with the lockdowns that were taking place across the country. And because they might have been individually impacted by the financial fallout of a lockdown, they then now had a motivation to revisit their views about how the Democrats were handling COVID, right? And so if they're being fed information about how Biden wants to shut down the country, they're going to be now more open to that kind of messaging and therefore shift their opinions away from Biden to Trump. So something needs to happen in order for people to be motivated to then really look at the schema again and see whether that fits their reality. So the motivation that cognition thing is, is very, very important and it's a huge part about how persuasion takes place. If you can give people a reason to think about your message, then you kind of have a bit of a foot in the door. But without that reason, it's much easier for them to process information that is aligned with their worldviews and that's what they're going to do. I totally agree with the fact that people are lazy and prefer the easy way of doing things. It's not necessarily lazy because it is partly that it's a lot of cognitive effort to think about every single message that comes through. So from a purely practical point of view, that's not something that we can do. Okay, So that's number one. Second thing is there is emotion involved. You know, It's not just a rational response. So any kind of decision that involves our belief systems, that involves potentially things that could affect us directly in terms of our day-to-day lives, these have emotional valence to them. And we tend to want to avoid negative emotion whenever we can manage it. So when we have to engage with arguments that are contrary to our worldviews, that does create negative emotion in the form of cognitive dissonance, right? So just even holding that idea to be true creates that dissonance in our minds, which a lot of people don't want to deal with. So above and beyond just being cognitively lazy, as the dual model of cognition would suggest, it's more than that. It's also having to confront how we feel about certain issues. And that's something that sometimes people fail to consider. We're not fully rational beings. The average person doesn't dedicate a lot of time to following on news and politics and whatnot. So you rely on heuristic snapshots. So what sound bites can I ingest to let me know what's going on? And that's precisely what you see all the time in the news. We tend to do a lot of shortcuts when making decisions like that because we, you're busy with work and, and life issues, right? So you, you can't just afford to dial in and sift through all the stuff to find out what's actually happening. Well, what Behan said as well, it's even more jarring. And there's some recent research as well into this that looked at 2016 and all of that. Basically, it's not even that people are engaging with news. They are just engaging with headlines. Right. So it's not even like people are reading through an article and getting the nuance of the article and so on. They look at a headline that fits with their worldview. That's what they're sharing. That's it, yeah. It's, it's to that point of that superficiality of engagement at this point as well. And it could also be just because that there's so much out there to consume as well. And that's not even mentioning that half the time when you see a headline, it may not necessarily reflect what the article actually says, which just adds another layer of difficulty to the whole thing. Yes, clickbait is a problem. All right. So with all these biases and complexities that we have to deal with, 
there is another one as well in relation to what we were talking about just now where Trump is kind of eroding the stability of everything and creating chaos by discrediting news media and science and in a way to deal with the uncertainty and the threats and chaotic nature of the world, especially with a lot of death going on around with COVID-19 happening. There is this theory that says that people tend to justify systems as fair and just, even if they are not, in the face of threats, death, anxiety, and uncertainty. So these individuals have a conservative shift towards justifying the need for an authoritarian strongman leader, perhaps like Trump, who can shut out the evil people or handle the crisis well and provide structure in a way to the chaos that he kind of facilitated, which is quite jarring. And these effects may be more pronounced with COVID-19 happening because there's a lot of deaths going on around the world and people tend to have a lot of death anxiety when they're faced with thoughts of death being bombarded to them consistently on the news. So I would just like to ask you guys, would this proposed increase in public system justification add to the probability of a Trump re-election? Or has his administration's failure to handle the crisis kind of undermine this advantage? It depends on the concern that the person has, right? So if the concern is public health, then yes. If the concern is the economy, then no. Because if people are concerned about public health, then they would be very appalled by the way the Trump administration is handling the COVID crisis, the way they're minimizing the dangers, the way they are basically being very cavalier about the safety procedures and methods and not caring at all that they are basically conducting super spreader events in the form of rallies and so on. If your primary concern is public health and obviously individual health, then you would be very, very upset by what is happening. And you would not see Trump as a strong leader or basically feel like he would provide the kind of structure that the country needs in order to get back on track. So that's why even with the idea of potential shutdowns or lockdowns that the Trump administration is accusing Biden of wanting to do, people are still willing to vote for Biden under the circumstances despite the economic impact because their primary concern is healthcare. Flip that around to people whose primary concern is finance, right, and their economy and their basically what we would call bread and butter issues. So if that's their concern, then they will see Trump as the strongman leader because he is the one who seems to be fighting with their governors or their local state authorities who are basically creating these lockdowns and economic shutdowns that are impacting their rice bowls. So they would then see Trump as having their backs and they would be okay with the way he talks simply because he is a means to an end, which they see as a more stable economy, better economic growth in the face of what they're currently facing. And that way, they would be more likely to back him, even if they say disagreed with him on the racial issue, or if they thought he wasn't a very good speaker and that he could potentially do with cleaning up his language a little bit. But that's peripheral to the fact that he's fighting their corner in something that they feel is becoming more and more dire for them and their families and their communities. So it really depends on what their primary concern is and what they think is essential in the face of a crisis. 
interesting. It's like what he says, like how he speaks doesn't really matter to these people because mm. they have other concepts. And that's actually a really interesting perspective as well, because a key point behind system justification is to do with I mean, having a preference for the status quo. So this is why you tend to see people, especially when things are unstable, economy-wise, or as a threat internal or external, there's always going to be this preference for, oh, remember when things were fine and before the pandemic, and there was that element of nostalgia, but more like a preference for the status quo at hand. So this is one explanation why as well, that people tend to prefer, and it's not just Trump, but it's the Republican Party, which as entire party, they campaign along the lines of, oh, we are conservative. And conservative in the traditional sense would generally mean people who would always fight to preserve the status quo. So to them, they represent the time where things were simple, or according to their perceptions. They would represent the time where people knew where they belonged, and they use rhetoric in that sense, where we wouldn't get anybody who's trying to rattle any cages. So it's a safe option. It's an easy option if you are daunted by all the uncertainty that goes on as well. So that adds another layer on how people tend to prefer a bit more authoritarian style leadership, like Trump and the Republican Party. It might serve to an extent to justify how we are seeing a little bit more of a shift now, especially in the House with elections, on how the Republicans seem to be gaining a little bit more ground than the Democrats would have thought they would have they would have. So that being said, one thing that system justification in this case didn't explain was how minorities would support an outgroup and support a more superior group. But in this case, we are seeing overwhelming support of minorities in favor of Biden. So it seems that how his administration has handled the crisis, because they were the primary ones, like what Elaine was saying, right? They were the primary ones affected by COVID. So the justification for why they would support an outgroup would not take place this time around because people that I know die and my family members are out of a job. So there's no real reason for them to support that anymore. So that's where you can see the real effects of the SJT in society. Interesting. So his failures to handle COVID-19 did not undermine his advantage enough? Not to a significant degree, unfortunately. Because there's more than one concern. And although there's a lot of death, remember that people have difficulty empathizing with numbers, right? So you tell me 100,000 deaths, I have no reference point for what that means. I can't even imagine 100,000 people in a room. So that's an abstract, very far-flung, distal factor in what I would think about, right? Whereas an economic shutdown means I have no job. I can't feed my kids. I can't get access to help in any kind of way. And... A lot of people in my community are facing the same thing. There's a lot of people who are suicidal because of this. And none of them have COVID, right? So unless I am directly impacted by COVID, all this coverage just seems like you're ignoring the very real consequences of shutting down the economy that are impacting my life directly. So that's something that people don't realize, especially people who are maybe in a more comfortable position who are not directly affected by economic shutdowns, they may not have the same perspective about why some people are willing to risk infection so that things can go back to normal. In a way, it's like the COVID-19 statistics are against Democratic Party in a way because only 200,000 people have died and the people in that vicinity that know that story, that feels personal to them, that they lost someone and that would be a concern for them. The virus would be a concern for them. But for the rest of the population which is like millions concern for them would more be like economical reasons just to add on as well right not to say that the numbers or the death numbers will affect the democrats or, or republicans more as well it's in terms of how severe people are taking the virus 
I'm like, what Elaine said was actually really interesting. You don't actually see the effects of the virus. When, when people get affected by it, they go into hospitals and there's not as much of a visceral effect of death that you would see otherwise. So people tend not to be able to take it as seriously because they don't see it compared to losing of jobs as well. So it's not just like, you know, the virus has been affecting one side more than the other. It affects primarily minorities and lower so SSE areas. I see. So besides system justification theory and different sets of concerns that can really align people to Trump, even during the pandemic. There are also prejudices that Trump supporters tend to hold. Studies have found that these individuals are possessed as education and want an authoritarian leader to silence troublemakers and crush evil, alluding to the riots that have been happening in the U.S., in a way, perhaps these individuals feel that Trump can stop this from occurring again, even though he didn't for the first time, which is strange enough. Also, not surprisingly, pro-Trump voters tend to have prejudice against immigrants, African-Americans, Muslims, and women. My question to you guys is, how does Trump play to these prejudices in his supporters? How does he pander to these supporters' prejudices? All right, this is a big one because one, it would be very easy to look at how Trump would have an effect at catering to these people as well. But one thing we do have to remember is that these problems when it comes to racial segregation, racial prejudice have been in place for a very long time. And just like a lot of situations when it's right for the picking, essentially, right? So what happens in this case, if you look at the demographics of voters as well, in areas where Trump has won, the voting support is overwhelmingly white and male. That's usually the demographic that would go as well. And compared to Biden's side, which majority of the populations of for example, women and minorities and younger folk as well would tend to vote for Biden. So in a way, you can see him and the party that he's campaigning for tapping into the already existing prejudices and then feeding on their fear, telling them that what you were afraid of all the time is true and I'm here to provide a solution. And that's a very common tactic. And this can be traced back down to threat as well because we can sit here on relative ivory towers and argue about ethics and how he handles himself as president. But if you look at somebody who is worried about losing their jobs, especially in the Rust Belt areas as well, one very real concern they would have is because they are in direct competition to people like immigrants, for example. And that's easy then for Trump campaign and the more conservative side to feel fear for individuals like that because these were the people that you'd be directly competing against. So the mechanism for prejudice against these people are already in place and they're just simply tapping into that to just kind of tease it out as well. And that's, like I said, it's already existing. So Trump didn't actually bring out anything that wasn't already existing there. Fan the flames made it worse, yes. And that's why they keep calling it the silent majority in a sense where we've been here for ages. We feel like our voice has been suppressed by the libs and now they feel it's their chance to speak out again. And now what their views are, it's validated by the most powerful man in office. And there's been, obviously, with any kind of move towards one end of the political spectrum. So in the US, for example, you've seen a bit of a liberalization happening under Obama. So LGBTQ rights and so on. The seeming erosion of the influence of the church and religion. So what happens when the political sort of compass shifts is a pushback from people with more opposing views. So people who feel like they're kind of losing the way things have always been done. When people seek authoritarian leaders, it's usually because they feel like they need to protect 
something. So we talk about symbolic threat, the idea of symbolic threat, which is a threat to your way of life. People tend to want an authoritarian leader because this authoritarian leader will be seen as protecting that way of life and fending off anyone who seeks to disrupt that way of life. So it's called right-wing authoritarianism simply because it's a protection of a set worldview from any kind of outside influences that are going to make things different or want to make us change the way that we've always done things. So that's one of the things that you're seeing is potentially a pushback from people in terms of the changes that have been happening in society there. It doesn't matter that the majority, supposedly, of Americans are more liberal, just based on the percentage of votes that Democrats tend to get. Obviously, the issue in the U.S. is also similar to here, which is there's a lot of gerrymandering. The largest districts don't necessarily account for enough contribution to the electoral vote, for example. So if you see where the population of the U.S. is concentrated, it's in very in states that are highly populated but only have X number of electoral votes, whereas the smaller states with fewer people, even though they don't necessarily have a lot of electoral votes, there's enough of the smaller states to sort of pad the numbers despite there being fewer people in those states. So, I mean, it's similar here as well, right? The larger constituencies have like hundreds of thousands of people but one representative and smaller ones have like tens of thousands and one representative. So it's a similar sort of issue. But what that means is that it is possible that these people legitimately feel like they're in a minority and therefore they need, again, that strong man leader to represent their views. So if you think about the whole idea of the Supreme Court and getting Amy Coney Barrett in before the election, even though the Republicans previously said this is not something that they would condone on election year and that the people should decide. This wasn't seen as a disingenuous move by Republicans because it fit with what they want, which is the protection of their way of life and their beliefs. And they felt like this is the way that they can get that done. So ultimately, it's still a means to an end. So with regard to things like us versus them, when you actually see it in terms of sides rather than in terms of values and principles that are common right between human beings, if I see it as I want my side to win so that the priorities that my side has is what is going to be of concern and therefore I get my way, then goodbye values, hello, social identity. <laughs> and no one wins in the end. It just becomes an argument about me. And If they can get what they want, would you say, the Roe v. Wade overturn, which means that they have no say about women not being able to get abortions, if they can reverse decisions about healthcare, which they see as big government versus the Republican view of small government. All of this is going to basically be enough of a justification that the means justify the ends for people in this situation. So how did Democratic Party really counteract Trump's strategies to fan the flames of prejudice in a way. Well, they did try the superordinate identity. Yeah. A superordinate identity is a popular social psychology concept that makes diverse group members feel simultaneously similar and different, which would facilitate feelings of belonging and at the same time, distinctiveness. It is the result of the members of the group being different, while at the same time being part of a group that operates separately from the rest of the organization. 
We are all American. There's no such thing as red state, blue state. I will be a leader for all Americans, <laughs> president for all Americans. That was basically using superordinate identities. So again, this is sort of one of the many strategies to try and reduce prejudice between groups, creation of a shared identity between two opposing factions. So that might have worked for some people. Again, it depends on how much you care about your subordinate identity, how much of a part of your self-concept that identity is. So there's something called self-concept or social identity complexity, where you're very clear that you have multiple different social identities and there's very little overlap in those social identities. So I can be Republican and I can be American. And me being Republican doesn't necessarily have anything to do with me being an American. So it's easier for me to don the idea of being an American over being a Republican when it matters. But if I conflate being a Republican and being an American, taking care of Republicans means taking care of Americans. And if you're not taking care of Republicans, you're not taking care of Americans. So someone with low social identity complexity isn't going to respond very well to attempt at creating a superordinate identity. So what we are probably seeing with the Biden strategy is that it might have been able to reach people whose Republican identity and American identity were not super integrated or overlapped. But for people who had that kind of identity integration so that they have very low complexity, the messaging would not land, I don't think. Not to mention as well that with situations where a society has become so polarized and potentially segregated as well, any kind of attempts to build a superordinate identity usually doesn't work very well. It will run into the standard idea of the people who would respond to your message. Chances are these are people who would already be more sympathetic towards your message to begin with. So it feels like a very much a preaching to the choir situation. On the other hand, right, when we see in terms of how Biden would conduct his strategies as well, building a superordinate strategy is pretty much the go-to rate at the stage. It's a very effective way to kind of bring people together. But I want to bring it to our languages. Because we, you know, we talked previously about how the values get tossed aside in favor of what I want. But how language is used in terms of political rhetorics is you tend to wrap up your side as the value. So I represent the values even though I'm doing the exact opposite. So for example, Mitt Romney, and he said that, oh yeah, the Democrats have enjoyed a liberal Supreme Court for a long time. So it's, you know, it's time to balance the scales. And the way he's phrasing it is, oh yeah, you had your term of being liberal. That's switched to the other side. And to a lot of people, it'd be, oh yeah, that's fair. So when it comes to looking at how the Biden strategy is trying to create an identity by presenting two very different frameworks, and you can see this in the first debate they had where in the final statements of each candidate, Trump was saying, like, I can't remember what he said exactly. Uh, Biden countered exactly by saying, if I win, I'm going to essentially represent all of America. But the problem with competing rhetoric is this. When one side makes a claim, and if the other side doesn't counter, the side that made the claim would generally do fairly well. But the moment there's competing rhetorics, we enter what we call a framing contest in which the effects of each side cancels each other out, no matter what they're saying. And that's why a lot of people have the perception that, oh yeah, just by being in a debate with Trump, Biden felt like a weaker candidate. And that's because whatever message that you put in, because of the Trump campaign has structured their whole rhetoric, it automatically cancels out a lot of the messages that Biden would try and present just by being in a frame competition with, uh, with the other side. So that's another layer on how Biden's strategies may not have seen as much of an effect based on how the early voting system seems to have worked. Yeah, we saw an extreme example of him cancelling out Biden's points in the first debate. It's hard to really see Biden as charismatic when you put him beside Trump. Even my mom who doesn't watch politics much. She found a strange admiration for Trump. 
So this that just reminded me of something else as well. There's a little interesting caveat to what kind of stuff Trump says, right? Because you listen very carefully to his talking points, he tends to repeat key points a lot. And it's like his own, his own little sound bites, essentially, right? So the effects that has on his supporters is basically they remember those key talking points. So he comes across as a much stronger candidate because when you say, okay, what did Biden say? Ah, uh, something about being a president for all Americans. But, you know, if you listen to what Trump says, oh, yeah, very strong, very effective, very good, tremendous work. You know, he keeps repeating those. So it sticks in your head. And if you don't know what's going on, that's how you'd be like, oh, yeah, but he seems to be doing okay. Like, you know, I remember him better. That guy seems to have some TV experience. So everything that we have talked about in a way, the destructuring of typical news media, the discrediting of science, the political polarization, the pandering and the fanning the flames of our prejudices, our biases. It seems that Americans are starting to not believe in the voting system in America, or at least what democracy re- represents in the recent years. One report shows that 25% of young adult Americans trusted Congress to do the right thing all of the time or most of the time in 2010. But this figure dropped to 18% in 2016. And Donald Trump has been argued to leverage off this growing cynicism by characterizing the existing system as crooked, as rigged, as it's not working because it's in favor of elites. And his style of being very combative and very direct seems to have intensified this cynicism to the system as well and unified his support base. So that was during the 2016 election. I just wanted to ask you guys, did Trump's campaign pander to voter cynicism during this election? And what are the effects, if any, onto the American public for this? Interestingly, it seems to have had the opposite effect if the numbers are to be believed. Something was happening in America where people felt the need to have their say. And it could be political cynicism that hasn't yet gone to apathy. So we find that it's not cynicism that makes you stop engaging with the political process. It's actually apathy. So when people are cynical, it's possible for them to still want to be engaged and maybe even more likely that they're going to scrutinize things a little bit more and they're making decisions. So that's not necessarily a bad thing to an extent, but where you're cynical to the point where it becomes apathy, that's when you sort of see a decline in engagement. And so not trusting your politicians, again, is not necessarily a bad thing because... I feel like having a healthy dose of realism about what politicians are is good because then you're more likely to hold them accountable. You're more likely to look closely at the things that they're doing and saying. So it could go both ways. It depends on what people do with that cynicism. Do they allow that to basically fester and ruminate and lead them to a point where they think nothing they do matters? Or does that put them into sort of active mode where they now are more engaged, more likely to want to hold their politicians to account, want to look at the records of how their representatives are voting, and then hold them accountable at the next election. So if that's sort of where the cynicism is taking them, then it's entirely possible that this whole situation has increased people's awareness of the importance of politics. Because whether we like it or not, there will be government. 
So mm. apathy doesn't actually serve us very well. So in a way, like a fire to push people forward, you know, even though they think that the system isn't working, it really pushes them and drives them to change it. Yeah. Wayne? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and if you look at the campaign strategies from either side, right? So I would say actually Trump's campaign was actually banking on not just apathy uh, or not just creating apathy eventually, but also straight up active voter suppression, right? Making it as difficult as it is for voters to vote. Basically changing the rules at the last minute, you know, railing against mail-in ballots, and also not to mention the spin of his rhetoric as well, seemed to be tailored towards either getting undecided voters to be disillusioned enough with the process to not bother voting, or just getting people to go out oh, to help. The other side, however, is countered by Joe Biden's tactics. And this one, I think, may not have been Joe Biden directly, but people who are definitely against Trump. And there's been a massive movement of encouraging people not just to vote, but to get people registered as well. Because a very important part of voting is people are more likely to vote if the mechanisms are simple and easy to understand. So what a lot of groups, and we're not talking about like NGOs in general, but we're talking about Anyone with like a microphone and a certain degree of influence has been doing this where they've outlined specific details on how anyone in any state will vote, what the rules are, how to get registered, and they've created a very powerful social pressure. If you voted, get your friends. And a lot of social media presence is essentially galvanized voters. So, so I think that would have been quite effective at countering the cynicism initially. My fear, however, is that if, let's say, this election doesn't turn out the way Democrats wanted to, and if Trump wins for another four years, that might lead to potential higher levels of apathy, where people would go, I tried, I did everything, and it still didn't work. Why bother? You know, and four years of watching him in office would definitely cause more apathy. But now they seem to be riding on more of a galvanized spirit to, to get something done and to voice out. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is how much Americans dislike being told what to do. That's not knocked out turnout for the last election as well, which is you know actually quite good. Yeah. And and again, that's a reaction to basically this concept that Malaysians wouldn't care what was going on. I think what we're probably seeing is that when people realize that they're being taken for granted and they're being taken for a ride, then it suddenly awakens them to the idea that, hey, you know, there must be a reason why politicians don't want me involved, you know? (laughs) And in this situation, I think it might not be a bad thing for America, even if Trump wins or the Republicans take Senate and all of that. I think enough people have suddenly woken up to the potential effects of having somebody like that in office. And the fact that they've responded the way they have, and if the Democratic Party is smart, they will not allow this kind of enthusiasm to die out so quickly and try and make the most of it, especially at the state levels, get more young people involved. In fact, I think young people have voted in record numbers this election, and that's not a bad thing at all for American democracy, because if they want to see any changes, it will inevitably come from young people. If you think about all the great movements in history, it's not people who are very old that made those changes. You know, if you talk about when America was set up, they were young, they were in their 20s. So I think it's important that people recognize that effect and not allow it to just die away. I would really hope that the Democratic Party starts engaging young people actively, trying to see how they can deploy them to create small changes at local levels, that sort of thing, to build that political efficacy that will then move towards the higher levels of government in America. Because if you just wait for the old people to 
get elected into Senate and all of that, by then they're not really going to be so open to change. That's one of those things that we know about, I guess, politics is that, and just beliefs in general is that the older you get, the further to the middle. More conservative, yeah. Yeah, and it's also maybe about energy, about maybe being demoralized. Also letting your experience drain you to a point where you think this is how the world works, right? Yeah, exactly. Or maybe making peace with acceptance and whatnot once you get to an older stage. Yeah, from yeah. a less cynical perspective, I guess, or pessimistic perspective. That and also maybe just because, you know, your beliefs just start to get more entrenched. So you're unable to maybe see a different way of doing things. Whereas when you're young, you're still sort of trying to decide how you want to engage with the world and how you actually think about something. So you're more likely to be able to hold a 340, 5D view of a topic compared to somebody who has you know, spent so many years involved and they now no longer have that kind of ability to take perspective and see things from different angles. So there's that as well. This is something I just wanted to add as well, because we get some brief stats, and yes, the young voters did have record turnouts, which is great. But they have noted in some states, like Texas, for example, the comparison from young people who voted from 15%, and this time was exactly the same. So I think we also need to pay attention to certain cultural elements within the states, because you know it's easy to look at the states as one big modules, and it really isn't. And I think getting young people to vote is one thing that is absolutely fantastic as well. But without some sort of grassroots to echo what you said, a certain pervasive element of hopelessness would pop in. And also, we have to also look at the states where young people aren't voting, even this election, and start asking themselves, so why exactly? Because they definitely could have swayed the vote, but the lack of turnout could be a problem there, right? Perhaps learn helplessness in a way. Also something, yeah, it's not necessarily learned helplessness, but I was listening to an analysis about the young vote. And one of the things that people were saying was it wasn't so much apathy or learned helplessness or anything of the sort. It's just that young people, compared to old people, right, or older people, one is they just have less of a roadmap, right? It's the first time they're voting. They may not necessarily understand the electoral system very well. They may not know how to register or if they know how to register, they might not necessarily know how to go about getting the vote cast, they might have more responsibility, so their opportunities to vote might be less. And another thing that they were saying is that young people apparently are more mobile, so they're moving from state to state, and each state has different laws for registration, different laws for voting. So there's a lot of ways in which young people can get disenfranchised. It's a very complex picture, and I think sometimes when we do analyses like this, it can oversimplify the problem. And not to mention is that most people would follow like your immediate environment, like your parents, or you would vote quite mm. similar to how your family would vote. But let's say your family didn't vote and they're fairly apolitical and you're trying to vote for the first time, it can be a very confusing time. We will now be diving into how America became a nation divided by parties. Mr. Weihan and Ms. Lin, America has been facing an increase in political polarization in the past few years, becoming incredibly intense and becoming incredibly violent at times even, both parties disagreeing on every front and really just showing all-out hate to each other. Could both of you try to help us understand why this is occurring from social psychology perspective and really how this came about? I would first maybe be cautious about potentially catastrophizing things over there. I think the media has a lot to do with how things are being portrayed as far as the polarization is viewed. Generally speaking, I think there is fear, of course, of there being a rise in hate groups and 
things like that. But I don't necessarily see there being a polarization to the point where there are two very clear, distinct groups. Americans have always sort of had this divide based on their political identity, at least for the recent past. The whole I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican thing is part of their social identities in general for a lot of them. But I think what you're also seeing is that there's an increase in the number of independents, people who don't affiliate themselves to either party. And I think even within the parties, if you sort of follow interviews with voters and things like that, where you're not necessarily seeing footage from a mega rally by itself, for example, but you're you're looking at interviews from Republican voters from other spaces. The concerns are more, I would argue, moderate in nature that reflect particularly conservative or the liberal point of view, but not necessarily to the point where it's so contrasted from somebody else who would be somewhere in the middle, right? It's just that you would err on the side of a more conservative, say, small G government point of view versus a more liberal sort of welfare point of view, for example. So part of the polarization that we're seeing, I think, is in the media highlighting instances where there is violence or there is hatred being seen and creating sort of an availability heuristic for us where because we're seeing, quote-unquote, so many instances of it in the media that we take this to be the reality. But there have been a rise in student protests that are quite intense lately, uh, shouting down speakers, preventing them from speaking in universities all across the US when they deem the speaker to be a hate speaker or someone that they don't agree with. I think it's more that they have learned that they can express that and there's been, I guess, a movement towards a more liberal way of doing things. So yes, there is extremism. I don't disagree with you that there is polarization. What I'm disagreeing with is the extent right. and also needing to be careful about this. So again, these are things that are being reported, right? So we need to be careful about what is reported versus what is actually happening in terms of the actual number of instances. So if you're thinking about the riots, for example, that were around the Black Lives Matter protests and stuff like that, that was what was being highlighted a lot in the conservative media, for example. But the peaceful protests were not. So contrast that with what people's opinions of the riots are. That's the kind of effect that the availability heuristic has. So you convince people that there is unrest in the streets when the majority of the protests are actually peaceful. So it's one of those things that people need to really be careful about creating this impression simply because that can lead to polarization. Like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. By creating this availability here, you actually start scaring people into believing that the other side is becoming more extreme. That pushes people towards becoming more polarized. So that is kind of something that we need to pay attention to. Remember when we talked about pushback, right? So the pushback towards liberalization is people wanting to protect conservative values. The pushback to seeming extremism on the right is people becoming more and more extreme to the left, right? So um, again, whether or not this is them reacting to reality or them reacting to a narrative is something that we really need to unpack. And like I said, it's not. I'm not saying that there isn't, and a movement towards or movement towards the poles 
It's just that the degree we need to be careful about how we yeah. do it. Don't make it worse than it seems. What you just mentioned earlier on reminded me of something that's actually quite important because I was listening to a debate recently that was basically literally about the topic you mentioned, but how certain people were denied platforms to speak in campus. And the debate topic was around the idea of, you know, should we censor our hate speech or not and things like that. And it gives rise to a very interesting discussion because in, if you look at modern day public discourse, you tend to see, yes, there's two sides, right? And most people would tend to usually be somewhat in the middle. And, you know, they would have opinions from the side and may not be as extreme initially. And this is where it starts. But when you start to see, you know, uh, conversations and topics getting heated, like how media sometimes would sensationalize events, or even it may not be an intentionally malicious thing. Sometimes it could be, okay, because the issue is complex, we are going to simplify for this side, believes in that, the other side believes in the other thing to make it easier. And as a result, people may latch onto a concept and end up in a way kind of oversimplifying a very complex issue that results in like, like what you, know, you guys were saying, like it, it may lead to eventual polarization. The other side as well, and I really like the, the thing you mentioned about pushback, because you see in campus where people would disagree with something, let's say, LGBTQ rights, and they may not necessarily be anti-LGBTQ, but because of a very visceral reaction or how they think is a visceral reaction, they might then feel like they're being attacked, which you know lends legitimacy to their side. So they may be moderate to begin with, but would have inadvertently be pushed to the opposite side. And like you said, it creates this kind of opposite reaction as well, right? Mm-hmm. So... I think one thing that we need to also look at is learning how to engage in things like nuance again without resorting to that, oh, you're on my side or you're not kind of debate and avoid oversimplifying potential really, really complex topic. You can't just break down, you know, things like LGBTQ rights, gender issues, just simple left versus right kind of thing. There's a lot of nuance to unpack. And by not engaging in that nuance, we end up, you know, oversimplifying issues and potentially paving the way for more extreme polarization as we go along. So in a way, it sounds like we don't take things personally in a way that we're being attacked on certain points, trying to view it in more objective and nuanced reality than it is. Mm. But as we discussed previously, that's quite hard for people to do because it takes a lot of effort. Basically, the, the idea of these discussions is not necessarily to agree or disagree with a side. It's like giving people a way of thinking about things so that they are able to then make those decisions themselves, right? Like shining a light on the processes that are happening so that you're aware. It doesn't mean that you have to accept that one side is better than the other or or whatever, but it just means that when you're engaging with what is happening around the world, you're able to then take a step back from how you feel about it and then really try and see things from the other side. Don't get me wrong, I have my political views. I don't know if I necessarily say that I'm always left-leaning, but the point is, it's important to recognize that it is a political spectrum for a reason. Each individual is going to fall on that spectrum differently depending on the issue. The problem with the left versus right rhetoric is that it doesn't give people a lot of opportunity to actually move along that spectrum, right? So it's important for us to sort of, where we can, really make it clear that politics is not binary. Even within the left and within the right, there's a lot of disagreement about how to do things, to what extent do we take a certain policy, 
So like Rehan said, you know, LGBTQ rights is not necessarily a liberal versus conservative issue per se, right? Mm -hmm. Even within those camps, there's differing degrees to what people think should be given, what sort of rights should be given to individuals and so on. So very, very important to, I guess, see past the sensationalism, understand that media cannot give us a full picture of what's going on simply because that's not the way human beings digest information. And so if they want to get views and so on, they're going to have to focus on narratives. They're going to have to highlight things that are sensational in order to get people to engage. Yes. Do both of you have any suggestions on how people can really avoid this kind of extremism to one side and to the other of like simplifying things as well and instead view the world as something as nuanced as it really is? I think we've kind of sort of touched on it a little bit as well, right? But I think a vast amount of how we can avoid inadvertently feeding the extremism is also to pay very close attention in how we ourselves present information. For example, if you look at how an average discussion would be, where I encounter an opinion that is different from mine. Now, in a normal civil discussion, if I hear something that's false, I might present information that will say, hey, look, you know, that, that's not true, and, and this is what you know, the fact checkers would say or not. But as we know, that ends up person believes in the falsehood enough, they, that might not actually work. So one thing that actually researchers found that does work to a certain extent is if you present information in a way that doesn't directly challenge their worldview. So instead of saying, you're wrong, here's the evidence, you say, okay, so why do you think that? And you consider, you know, potentially looking at it in another way. So in a way, you don't actually insult them, their worldview and their intent, because that's the thing that makes them double down and defend themselves. And this is a really hard thing to do, especially when you're talking about a topic that's really close to heart. And the initial response is always going to be like, you're wrong, here's why. But that never works, right? So being able to kind of, in a way, go around the defense instead of challenging or attacking the worldview, actually engage in discussion, which, you know, like I said, it's easier said than done, can, can go a long way in actually promoting discourse rather than cheapening the whole process to begin with. And yeah, that's one potential way that we can look at. I actually, I concur with Rehan actually in that regard. But also, I think it's important for us to clarify our own views and why we hold them to begin with. This is hard to do, but if you really want to become an engaged person and you want to be able to engage other people, the first thing you have to do is understand your perspective first. Because we become very defensive of our attitudes when we don't actually know why we hold those attitudes to begin with. They become indefensible then. Because if someone were to ask you, why do you believe what you do? And we can't come up with a good answer. Remember when we talked about persuasion in class, the whole concept of counter-arguments, right? When we cannot counter-argue effectively, it actually weakens the attitude that we don't like that. Uh, We don't like a light being shone on something that we believe and realizing that actually I don't have a good reason for this. That becomes almost like a defense mechanism, you know, that kind of self-protective response and shutting down and not wanting to hear what the other side has to say. So people who are most secure in their beliefs are the ones who are actually capable of objectively and constructively engaging with people who have opposing attitudes and opinions. You should check out some of the conversations with the, the two Supreme Court justices who passed away in the last few years and Ginsburg and how they can discuss the constitution from two very opposing points of view and yet the discussion can be civil, can be informative and this is because there are people who spend a lot of time 
trying to understand their worldviews and actually having that structure and that clarity for themselves. So I think a lot of the time we want to convince other people of something that we ourselves have not actually <laughs> taken the time to convince ourselves of it, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's that's something. That's another very important thing when you want to engage other people. Know where you're coming from as well, and the kind of biases that you might be bringing to that conversation as well. That then gives you a little bit more of a chance to, as Wei Weihan said, give the other person an opportunity to speak without us then emotionally responding to what that person is saying. Or even if we have an emotional response to what the person is saying, we know where that emotion is coming from and why we're having that emotion. And therefore, that emotion doesn't have that kind of control over us in that conversation. We need to think about very carefully when we're engaging with people who have different views because we often feel like, I need to challenge you. I need to show you that you're wrong. That adversarial kind of approach never never creates any kind of platform for there to be engagement. And you build off that as well, like having a bit of empathy goes a long way. You never know mm-hmm. when somebody holds beliefs of any sort that you know, they usually have good reasons to do so maybe or just lack of information and exposure, right? Just remembering that the people who hold these views, like you said, right, are, are people and connecting to them on a personal level wonders more than any kind of like fact-checking sources or information throwing their face would help. Thank you so much to both of you. I think know thyself before you can know others is a great way to end this session. Thank you so much for the insightful discussion today. I hope our audience now has a clearer picture of how the American society came to represent what they are today. I would like to end by saying that all of us are prone to these rare social effects and we all play a part in derailing detrimental systems that may be in place. To our listeners, Thank you for tuning in. We hope to see you next time when we dive into other political topics around the world. Till then, this is Political Points. Stay safe and good night.